Hello and welcome to Rear View, the show where we get to chat to the fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. This is the last episode on this version of Rear View on Tour, which has been brought to you in association with Mercedes-Benz Vans. I'm delighted to be joined by Carlton Boyce, a motoring journalist. Welcome to Rear View, Carlton. I'd like to start off by asking, how does an ex-prison governor start writing about cars? It's, it's a, a, a long story that's lasted most of my life, really. I've always enjoyed writing. Writing's always been kind of how I make sense of the world. You know, if I want to understand something, I write about it, whether it's emotions or vehicles. Um, I was a prison governor for 13 years, um, and it was a fascinating job. It's left me with a whole host of, um, of dinner party stories that I have to pick and choose very carefully which, <laughs> which ones I can actually tell. Um, but... Um, at the start of austerity, 2008, 2009, it became apparent that the prison service would suffer as every other government department uh, was going to from um, from cutbacks or efficiency savings, as they were termed at the time. Um, and um, I was offered the chance to take voluntary redundancy. And I mean, yeah, as most people will know, voluntary redundancy is generally on better terms than compulsory redundancy. So um, I sat down with my, my, my wife and we worked out the figures and decided that I could eat that out for two years. And at the end of two years, if, if I'd made a success of it, I would carry on. If I hadn't, then I'd go back to, um, to getting a proper job. And um, luckily, touch wood, fingers crossed, all the rest of it, it's worked out. It's still working out. And, and here I am, um, well, we're now seven years later. I love, I love I'm talking to merchant journalists. I love chatting to them because they always say... A proper job is something else. <laughs> this is never ever thought of as a proper job. Oh well, it's not, is it? No one, no one can pretend what we do has any real worth, value, or, 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 or contributing any way to society in in, in, in in any kind of larger way. It's, it's, it's not a noble profession. We're not reporting on, on, on trafficking or slavery, are we? Or world poverty? Uh, we're poncing around in other people's cars and having fun. <laughs> Well, when you when you phrase it like that, then um, it's, it's a very worthwhile and proper job. Uh, okay, we'll, we're going to explore that more. Actually, your writing and, all, and, and that sort of stuff uh, later on. But first, I want to do what I always do, which is go back in the myths of time. Um, have you always liked cars and motoringy stuff? Yes, I I, I, I qualify that because. Um, as will become apparent later, I like writing more than I like cars. So I'm not one of these people who loves cars, has always loved cars, and, and was, was always destined to write about them. I write about cars because, actually, when I started writing as a, as a, as a freelance journalist, the idea was to do crime rather than motoring, uh, because my background is 20 years in, in law enforcement in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And there are a variety of... of um, reasons that, that meant that didn't come off um, and that kind of forced me into writing about cars which was the only other thing I knew anything about um, but yes I've, I've always loved cars I learned to drive in a three-door Range Rover um, in the mid-70s I was about seven when I learned to drive that um, my father used to sell farm machinery but he also designed and built it um, grain silos things like that so mm-hmm. he, he sold tractors but he also had this this other more industrial side um, and at the time he was he was smoking around in a three-door manual v8 petrol range rover and where we lived there were private tracks behind us 
And so um, I learned to drive in, in, in that and, and was fascinated by, by Land Rovers. I mean, the, the pinnacle for me at the time was, was there was a forward control that they used to, um, to tow heavy machinery to shows. Mm-hmm. And despite the fact it, it was the most uncomfortable, slow, noisy, smelly thing in the world, that was, that was the car <laughs> I wanted to own later on in life because it was the most uncomfortable smell oh, it, it, it was awesome and it, it, you know it was a proper vehicle it was what proper men used to tow proper machinery and when you're seven and eight that's that's those are the kind of people i looked at and thought that that's what i want to be like and if you're seven and eight it's massive oh it was well. huge unbelievable absolutely unbelievable and um i just remember that the transmission tunnel was so wide that i seemed to be miles from the driver and I, I, you know, I've been in them since then, and they're not that wide. But when you're, you're little in this big transmission tunnel, it, it was incredible, life-changing stuff, literally. Yeah. <laughs> the writing's obviously important to you. Did you did you know in school <clears throat> that uh, you were good at it, or did, was it just something you liked to do? I was okay at it in school. I was a I was a typical angst-ridden teenager. You know, if, if if you look in the angst ridden in the dictionary, there could be a picture of me. That is a pretty <laughs> unhappy time, really. Um, I entered a few poetry competitions, funny enough, at school, and, and did okay in them. And I did sort of writing competitions. English was always my favourite lesson, um, but I wanted to be a vet. That was what I, I grew up wanting to be: reading James Herriot and mm-hmm. Eddie Stratton and people like that. Um, and um, because I was an angst-ridden teenager, you know, I didn't revise my O-levels at all and I passed them all, but with pretty poor grades. And it was such a competitive thing to get to study mm. that with poor GCSEs, that was never going to happen. Um, so, no, I, I never thought I would end up in the creative um, world at all. I mean, with hindsight, that was a huge mistake because doing what I do now suits me very well. Um, but um, I, I potted around. I did a few jobs. I... I Worked in forestry work for a while, cash in hand forestry work, cutting things down and burning them, which was enormous fun, and, and using Land Rovers to drag stuff around in. Um, I worked in a couple of shops, and I ended up working for Halfords, um, which was meant to be a temporary job. I was, uh, I think I was 17 when I started working for them, um, and found that I was pretty good at it, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that was a mixed blessing because you end up getting dragged into a world where you get promoted, which, which helps with, with a teenager's low sense of low self-esteem and kind of gives you validation in the world and you get more money and more people yeah. say nice things about you. And you end up on this, this treadmill of, of being promoted and doing bigger and bigger jobs with Halfords. And I ended up um, managing superstore openings. Um, so it's project managing the actual opening itself and then I would, I would run them for a year or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and then someone else would take over and I'd start the whole thing again. So I, I lived and worked all over England doing that. And it, it was an incredible time. I mean, it was in the 80s. Um, so it was very much the, the kind of yuppie generation, which I embraced fully with a, a series of Mark 1 Golf GTIs. <laughs> um, and, you know, life life was good. But um, I remember the pivotal moment for me, and, and this is desperately sad, but the, the, this really is my world, is I was working Norwich High Street store at the time. And um, it was the busiest high street store Halfers had. Uh, I was very proud of that. And it was the first frosty day of the winter. So I found out from the buyer, what, what's the previous record for selling the most cans of de-icer in a day? And whatever, it was, it was maybe a thousand cans in, in a storage sold in, in one day. And we doubled it. We sold over 2,000 in a day. And um, 
I went home and thought, you know, I should be proud of that. You know, I've set a record, although yeah. no one but me cares. Um, I wasn't, I thought, you know what, it's all pretty abstract. I'm beating budgets, you know, I'm, 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 I'm doing pretty well. People are saying nice things about me, but it's just not fulfilling me. Mm. And so at the age of 30, I had a midlife crisis and joined the prison service as a governor. <laughs> just like that, just like that. <laughs> so how long were you in the prison service? I was with the prison service for nearly 13 years. Okay. They'd realised they had a bit of a crisis and that all their prison governors, I think at the time, it was something like 70% of them were due to retire within five years. You know, it was an ageing population. <laughs> well, exactly, because the, the old model used to be you would join as a prison officer and then you would become a senior officer and a principal officer and then work your way up through the governor grades. So by definition, you were probably in your 40s before you were a junior governor and then... Um, that, that gives you a skew, skewed demographic. You know, mm. there, there was an accelerated promotion scheme for prison governors, which was a bit like the police one in that you started an officer, then you did the principal officer, then you did a governor. Um, but that didn't have a great deal of credibility um, at the time. So they decided what they wanted was people from outside industry to come in with management experience, but not prison experience. You know, it's this fresh pair of eyes mm-hmm. stuff that, that was very trendy at the time. Um, and so that's what I did. It was, it was a program that I think it only ran for three or four years and there were two intakes a year of about 20 people so it was fairly limited scope and they realized it just didn't work uh, <laughs> so it was binned um, but that, that's how I ended up going to the prison service straight as a governor. Okay so we we, we get to um, the downturn you've obviously decided right I've done I've done enough of governoring mm. <laughs> I have governed <laughs> so it's now time to do something new so you're you're you, you're going to start doing the writing, and you said that initially you started um, in criminal mm. stuff, yes, but that didn't work for for what for whatever reason. So when did you when did you first do the the car stuff then? How did that come about? I started doing the car stuff part time when I was a prison governor. I bought a, a 1994 soft dash um, Range Rover LSE, the long wheelbase version. And it was gorgeous. It was immaculate. 24,000 miles from you. And um, I'd never seen anything like it. It was a genuine time warp vehicle. I thought, well, there's got to be something I can do with this. So I contracted, I think it was Land Rover World, and said, you know, I've got this vehicle that's really quite nice. Um, would you like me to do something for you on it? And, and they said, yes, that would be great. <laughs> and we did four-page feature with some, with hindsight, pretty poor photography that I'd done. Um, with my wife's Canon G10 that I knew nothing about. I just left it on program and shot, and, and it, you know, it was all a bit amateurish, really. But they published it, four pages, and paid me. And I thought, well, you know what, this, this motoring journalism lot's fairly straightforward, really. Yes, I'll, I'll get into the industry by shelling out for a car. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I then did um, Harewood Hill Climb School, Mm-hmm. which is a terrific thing, just over £100. I'd recommend it to anyone if you're interested in hill climbing. And I did it in an old Porsche 911 that developed problems at lunchtime. So I phoned my wife said, look, can you bring the Range Rover up? Because I know it's not the weapon of choice, but um, I think it might be interesting and it means at least I get to drive something this afternoon. So she did. And I contacted another magazine and said, look, I've just done this hill climbing in a Range Rover. Um, I thought it was great fun. What do you think? And um, the editor said, yes, that sounds terrific. Do you have photos? Uh, no. Um, 
So fair play to him. He, he sent a photographer up and I liaised with Harewood and we restaged um, part of the day with the, with the photographer. Just getting the right amount of lean in the corners and that sort oh, of thing. Oh, it was incredible. It was incredible. <laughs> and, um, you put, put motorbike knee pads on the door handles, did you see? <laughs> well, at lunch, funny if at lunchtime on, on the day of the, the hill climb school, they, uh, they shot video from various angles and the, uh, the chief instructor gave a running commentary of what was playing on the video as we were all eating lunch. It was a very good day. And I came on in this, this, this Range Rover. We'd, we'd got about 20 minutes in before we broke for lunch of the Range Rover. And he looked at it and he was just speechless. <laughs> and the best he could come up with were, I suppose your lines are all right. <laughs> um, so anyway, we, we shot the photographs for this. And I, I wrote... Even with hindsight, I think my, my story holds up okay, you know, because, um, you know, it was an interesting subject, and that's mm. half the battle. Um, and after about a year, the magazine hadn't published it, so I contacted them and said, look, I don't mean to be pushy, I don't really know how the industry works, but you haven't published it or paid me. And he said, oh, he said, I think, you know, it, it's, it's time to come and gone, really. He said, I'll tell you, instead of paying you, can I pay you half, and I'll let you sell it on, and I'll give you the rights to the photos. So that was great. So I then sold it to another magazine who published it and paid me. So I got paid one and a half times for one article, which reinforced my belief that, well, motoring journalism must be the easiest gig in the world to get into. Because this was a day of fun as well. Yes. You, I, you were going for fun and, oh, look. I can make money. <laughs> um, so that was it. That, that was my, th- th- those were my two breakthroughs. I mean, I had written, I'd written about Citroen GSs for the, um, the Citroen Car Club magazine under the Flat 4 Forum chapter. So, I, you know, I had written, that was, I think it was about 18 when I was doing that. So that, that was my only other experience of motoring journalism, was, was writing a couple of pages in, a, you know, a fan club magazine every month. Okay, so you're now, you're now out there and... This is something that really needs to earn some money, please, because we like to eat, even though you've got a little bit of mm. security. But really, frankly, it would be very good if this did work. So how did you go about getting work then? Again, I was incredibly lucky. I contacted one of the nicest men in the business, a guy called Shane O'Donoghue at uh, Car Enthusiast Editorial Agency, and explained what I wanted to do and said, essentially, can I intern for you at a distance for a while mm-hmm. um, and Shane was wonderful he said yes uh, he gave me a wide range of stuff to do he was very supportive but also he was quite rightly critical where he needed to be critical mm-hmm. and I, I learned more from I think about three months was all I did but about f- more from from Shane in those three months than than I've learned in any other job because he he, he, he was great I can't thank him enough without Shane I, I, I wouldn't be where I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he he taught me how to take a press release and turn it into you know a short story. Which for anyone starting out in the business, that's that's your bread and butter. That that's what pays the bills. Is is the kind of stuff that you look at and it's desperately dull to write, um, <laughs> but hopefully slightly less dull to read. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, so, we've all experienced the not so good versions of that so (laughs) if you can pull it off if you can do a good job then that is a definite skill Mm. so um after these three months then uh, with the work you've done that that gives you a portfolio i suppose and also um i would presume over that time more people got to know of you 
Yes, I mean it's a very small world, and I, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm not one of the insiders. I wouldn't class myself as one of the insiders, one of the the inner clique by any means. Um, but yes, pe- people hear of you, um, and I was approached by a guy who was doing a website. I won't name him or the website, but he wanted a series of articles written. And he and I were on the same wavelength. You know, he didn't take life too seriously. Um, and so we wrote a series of articles, and I'm still surprised we weren't sued. <laughs> I mean, they in places were outrageous. <laughs> Absolutely outrageous. Um, but very funny. I enjoyed writing them. He enjoyed reading them. And we got lots and lots of good feedback. And I took a, a decision then, which was a... I'd like to claim it was strategic, but... Um, it was a decision that, that influenced and I think made my career in many respects in that I, I quoted for the work, but I quoted a way that was a living wage. Uh-huh. And I think back then it was something like £150 for 750 words. Right. Um, and I don't know how many people are, are sort of willing to talk about the business openly, but you know the wages aren't great. We have an awful lot of fun, but the wages aren't great, particularly as a freelancer. But I was stuck to my guns and said, essentially, at the time, that that was kind of my daily rate. Uh, and he paid it. And other people contacted me and I contacted other people. And I was always adamant that I wouldn't give my work away. I wouldn't sell it cheaply. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, there is always some flexibility within that. You know, if, if it's going to be a long-term gig, then sometimes the rates aren't as great or... Sometimes you'll do an article for free as a kind of introduction to somebody and say, look, this is what I can produce, have this one on me, and that then leads to more work. But the do, journey- you, do you think that was because you were older that you felt that you could stick to those guns more? You, didn't, you weren't under, I wouldn't say pressure is quite the right word, but you weren't as swayable. No, no, I don't. I think part of it was I've been very lucky and that, you know, the first articles I'd sold and sold more than once, yeah. you know, and so that gives you a skewed, gave me a skewed perspective on my own ability, my own worth and how the business functions. But also I, I was determined from day one that this had to be a business, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there are an awful lot of people who do what I do, who either do it for free because they want to break into the business and they think they have to, or they retired from the business and they carry on doing it because they want the free press cars every week and the free jollies uh, in, in nice hotels. And I decided that that's, that's a hobby. Mm. And I, I couldn't run my business as a hobby. It mm. had to be a business. It had to pay its own way. And, of course, some jobs you might make a little bit of a loss on, but it's, it's worth it in the longer term. Um, but generally, if I can't make a profit out of a job, I won't do it. Mm-hmm. And that was the, the mindset I had from day one. That, that seems to be a very key thing that a freelancer needs to have that the the jobs need to make a profit and having talked to others it's it it's slightly because it's you it's different from someone say who's a staff writer mm. who's getting a wage yeah that it's a different pressure that you've got and a different uh, perspective you've got to take on these things um i mean that, that's what i think i've learned if anybody was trying to get into freelancing that they need to appreciate and go in with the mindset of that you've got to look at this and you've got to say you are doing the vast majority of these for profit otherwise it it doesn't stack up financially uh, and you will quickly stop being a freelancer because you need to pay bills and things yes and and, 
you know, I think it's important to draw the distinction between people who are claiming to be motoring journalists and people who are bloggers, for example. I have enormous respect for bloggers. I mean, you know, Adam Tudor Lane is a classic example of somebody who went from, from essentially blogging into now making a living from it. Mm. Um, so it's by no means being rude to bloggers. I, I think one of the great things about our industry is, is that um, it's, it's, it's a meritocracy now. You know, if you're any good at whether it's podcasts or writing or videography, if you're any good, you'll make a living. Mm. Um, and most people start, I, I certainly had my own blog, um, by, by putting it out there and honing their skills and, and, and gaining an audience um, and not getting paid for it. And, yeah. and, and that, that's fine. But at the point at which you claim, in my opinion, to be a motoring journalist, you have to be making a living of some sort yeah. for it. Um, now, I'm as poor as a church mouse, but I'm at the stage where if a bill comes in, I don't need to worry about it. That's, mm-hmm. that's my definition of success. Yeah. And if I want to go out for lunch and then sit down with, with, with a friend and have a natter on a podcast, I have that freedom to do that. Yeah. Um, so that, that's my definition of success. You know, if anybody's thinking they're coming into the business, they're going to get rich, then, then they're absolutely not. It's <laughs> not going to happen. But you can have an awful lot of fun. Yeah. But if you want to make a living at it, you know, you have to be quite ruthless. You mm. know, I, I, I turned down a very nice three days away with the manufacturer last week in, in a very nice foreign location simply because the fact that I'd be away for three days and the money I would get from it did, didn't stack up for me. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, I'm sure I would have loved it. I'm sure the car would have been terrific, the company would have been terrific, and the food would have been amazing. But that's, that, for me, isn't my priority. My priority is can I make a, a profit from it? Yeah, that's secondary to mm. the, the main aim. Uh, okay, so so um, what sort of publications then were you writing uh, early on, writing for, sorry, early on? Oh, it was a variety. I did um, something for Practical Classics, um, it was it was all sorts really. It, a lot of website stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the website I mentioned was 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 where I earned the majority of my money. Um, but I did the odd bit for, for the odd newspaper, um, the odd bit for lifestyle magazines. Um, you know, it really was a broad church because mm-hmm. then as now, um, you know, I didn't think I could afford to pick and choose on well that looks interesting or exciting and and that looks a bit bit dull, so I don't want to do that. Um, and, you know, even now, and I, I guess most of us are the same, you know, I do commercial copywriting gigs for people that, that you know, are sometimes deathly dull. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, they tend to be the ones that, that, that pay well and, and, and not subsidise, but give give you enough financial security to be able to do the stuff that doesn't pay quite as well. Yeah, but it also, another way to possibly look at it is it's continuing to hone your your craft, hone your skills. If you are doing stuff that, oh, that doesn't look really that exciting, can I make it interesting? Mm. You know, that's a skill in itself. It is. <laughs> it is. It is. And, and that's that's one of the harder jobs is, is doing a car launch. And I, I wrote for CarWow for um, two or three years in the early stages. And um, I would have a, a, a new car every week plus, you know, anything up to two, three launches a week. And it was a real challenge sometimes to, you've just driven a mid-range diesel-powered state car, and you know, how can I write a thousand words and make it interesting and factual and try and engage the audience? Um, so there is a real skill to that, and you know, you, you develop it after a while, but 
still now I sometimes read a road test that, that someone else has done in if they go into detail about the spec levels and the trim that's available you think that was really quite dull to drive wasn't it because that's why you're, <laughs> you're, you're wasting words with this um, yeah. but yes ab- absolutely you know no one should expect to be able to come into any business and, and function at a high level from day one mm. and, and just because we've all been reading and writing since we're at school doesn't mean you're going to be any good at at writing about cars, I mean, you know, I've always maintained cars are inherently boring. Um, you know, you look at a car and look at the spec, and you, you know, even drive it down the road. It, you know, it's boring. It's what you do with them makes it interesting, and it's who you're with while you're mm-hmm. in them that makes it interesting. Um, and um, you know, there is a knack in to be able to kind of weaving that into your stories, as well as talking about the stuff like price and fuel economy. Mm. Yeah. Um, have you seen changes? in the industry since when you first started? Um, I'm not sure I have. I've only been in the industry seven years. That's that's a pretty short life cycle. Um, it's I mean, longer I, than some cars. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have seen the, the rise and the rise of social media. Um, you know, I've kind of ridden that wave with various manufacturers internally and and looking in externally and it, it has been interesting to see how that's honed itself over the years um, and somebody who is very senior in the business once said to me look we're engaging as a brand with social media because we, we think we have to we don't know what we're going to benefit what, what benefits we're going to find from it but everyone else is doing it so we can't not and and that still seems to be the kind of theme within the industry today um, you know, I'm still not sure many manufacturers understand social media or what it can do for them. Yeah, uh, and you know, likes and follows and retweets all tend to have equal value, regardless of who they're from or what. what yeah, so it's in. It, it, all these different channels can tell a different story. Mm. I think, and I'm with you that I don't think everybody understands that or is using it. Mm. I think it's, it's a, you see so many cross-platform postings. You know, the Instagram goes to Facebook, goes to Twitter, yes. and you think, is that right? You know, it, a picture's brilliant on Instagram, and sometimes it's great on Twitter, but maybe it's more words on Facebook you need, or yes. or something. You know, it's a combination of them. Maybe the same subject, but telling it in a sl- slightly different way. But that requires effort and thought and planning, yes. which. Not everybody does so much of, perhaps. Yes, it, it, a lot of manufacturers, it, it does sometimes feel a bit ad hoc. Mm. You know, it, it's just somebody's job in the office to to stick something out twice a day on social media. Um, and I, I worked with an agency for a British sports car manufacturer for two years, setting up and, and running their social media feeds. And they put an enormous amount of effort into planning what they did, how they did it, on which platforms. Um, so again, I, I was kind of spoiled by by having access to people who were 20 years younger than me, um, but who really knew what they were doing in, in terms of social media. Mm. Um, and so that, that enables me to bring a slightly critical eye to to what some other people are doing. Um, but hang on, I, I spoke to the head of one um, PR for one company on a launch and said, I love what your company is doing on Twitter. I think it's hilarious. It's consistently on brand. It's engaging. You know, it's a cracking job. And he just repeated, I effing hate it. 
As soon as I can kill that, I will. <laughs> and I thought it was the most ridiculous thing I'd heard for a long time in that, you know, the car was aimed at a young audience and they were doing very well in attracting that audience. And how much of that was due to social media is probably impossible to say. But whatever, that brand for that vehicle was doing very, very well. But because this PR chap in his 60s didn't like the tone, he was determined to kill it. Mm-hmm. And I just, you, you know, you kind of despair. You can imagine the social media team or the agency running that, that manufacturer is just pulling their hair out going, we're doing the job well, but just because you doesn't like it actually means nothing. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, I'm thinking um, people who do post on social media that it's and like you were saying there that you know some of the some stuff out from manufacturers occasionally looks um, ad hoc. I'm all for people because because we have the ability to to test, try something out, and then monitor it. Mm. But I think it's that last stage that people aren't always checking the stats, and then I know this starts getting quite geeky. And it starts getting all a bit close to uh, spreadsheety, which we all know I like. Um, but getting close to that area. But I think it's important if you're trying to if you're trying to project yourself on on social media in a way that you want to be uh, seen as attractive to either manufacturers or or manufacturers want to be attractive to potential buyers. You've got to check what you're putting out is worth it. Otherwise, it's a lot of wasted effort. And you may look as though you're just throwing spaghetti at a wall and hoping something sticks. Uh, absolutely. And it's that thing about being professional, isn't it? You're mm. investing, in most cases, an enormous sum of money annually to, to run your social media channels. And, of course, you have to, to test it and try new stuff. And, again, the agency I work with are very good at, 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 at tracking that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, we got it honed in the end to that, you know, we, we, we knew exactly what audience we were reaching with a particular tone of tweet or, or Instagram post or, or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, you know, but I think a lot of companies still don't know why they want to do social media. Mm. I think a lot of them are still stuck on the number of likes and retweets without thinking, well, actually, that's worthless if people aren't engaging with us, ultimately engaging to buy a vehicle. Yeah. And the people we need to engage with us and then buy a vehicle need to be the right demographic for the people either that we think we can attract or the people who are in that marketplace and, and we can have conquest sales from other other brands. Um, and a lot of stuff doesn't happen. They're, they're still happy with the, the 14-year-old schoolboy in his bedroom clicking like who who is, is not a viable customer. And of yeah, course, I mean, there may be that's... some investment for the future, but... Mm. That's an unknown. That yeah, because because if you're, all you're doing is wanting brand awareness, then that's fine. Mm-hmm. But if you know, if that's the very that seems to me the 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 first metric mm. is are we getting that right from that information? What can we get? And you're honing the the sales funnel or whatever people want to use. You know, you're honing it down to the the key element that you want, which is ultimately all this is to sell more cars. Yes. So it's understanding how that all fits together in the in the jigsaw or whatever um, cliche I want to use next. Uh, but however that all goes together, and it, it shows that they are parts of it. But, yeah, so like you say, if people don't listen to the advice they're getting or don't understand it, then it's not going to work. And it almost you might as well not bother because you're wasting everybody's time. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that will be a much more honest way to go about it. He's been social media and put some extra money into advertising. Mm. If you're not going to engage, then it, it, there is no point in just being out there 
No. You know, you have to be out there and, 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 and do it properly. Yeah, and you can see some of the manufacturers do do it really well. And, mm. then, and there's and there's some social medias that will answer questions. They will deal with the initial complaints because everybody seems to go to Twitter to shout their complaint rather than pick up a phone and say, my car doesn't work. Yeah. So, and, and you can see that they they have a way of dealing with all those things which seem very professional. Mm. And the best they can do via a screen on someone's phone yes. <laughs> you know, so uh, so that's great so you um did you work with other uh agencies then no no i i have i've worked um on a sort of part-time contract basis with another couple of manufacturers just to, to help them with specific problems mm. um but um but no it's um i i i enjoyed it enormously in the main um but it's it's and this this makes me sound very old, but it's 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 a young person's game. I remember I was on a conference call with with these these people who were at least twenty years younger than me. They were waiting for the client to come onto the line, and they said, "So, what are you doing tonight, then, Carl?" And I said, oh, "Probably going to watch a video." And they were howling with laughter, saying, "You're two generations behind when you make that kind of statement." <laughs> um, thanks, but, thanks, guys. <laughs> cheers, cheers for that. But also, as 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 you alluded to. Um, you know the best people do it, and it feels effortless. Mm. And they their their tone of voice on social media is effortless, and it's pitch perfect. Uh, and because of the speed of social media, I I had to get almost everything pre-approved, and that was a process that took up to a week. So you know while I was doing it, we couldn't do that that kind of fast interaction. Um, and I wasn't I wasn't sharp enough, clever enough, or funny enough to do that kind of instantaneous social media response that works so well. Mm. And, and, you know, when you see it, it's an absolute joy. Yeah. And, you know, they should pay those guys as much as the CEO because, you know, the people who, who, who can be that, that sharp and just be on the ball. thinking on your feet yeah. in, in that instant to that level that regularly yeah. as well. It's not like it was one-offs. Yeah. I, I remember on a similar vein, the, um, the Jeremy Clarkson incident where he... he um, did he allegedly punch the producer, or can we say he punched the producer? He's apologised for it, so I think we can say he did do it. Okay, super. We'll check with your lawyers first. Yes, but then we have was... a special legal fund. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that apparently was because he was hungry, wasn't it? Or he'd eaten on an em- drunk on an empty stomach or something. Anyway, Snickers, within a couple of days, addressed a package to him, you know, with the kind of strap line, you're not yourself when you're hungry. Oh, right, and okay. And that, that was that kind of yeah. quick wit. That, that, that works very well and I wasn't as I said I wasn't funny enough or bright enough or quick enough to be able to do that so I, you know I, I, I learned a lot um, and um, you know still know a reasonable amount about it but it, it kind of wasn't for me it was a very very well paid gig um, but um, it, it, it again kind of dragged me away from my core business which was you know driving other people's cars and having fun mm-hmm. um, and I was in danger of going down the health as route of, of yeah. you know, getting paid a fairly large sum of money to do something I didn't really enjoy doing mm. so um, you've you stepped away from that and yeah. then you're back to um, as you just said there your core business which is uh, driving other people's cars having fun and writing about it so um, how long ago was that that would have been around about 2013. Okay. Beginning of 2013. Right. Okay. Um, and then, so then you're, you look, you've, you've removed yourself from that income. I'm sorry, I'm just trying to work out in my mind, you know, how you then 
make up that or some of that <clears throat> loss of income? Did you then go and pester the people you you knew anyway? I did. I, I mean, you'll, you'll be delighted to, to know I, I developed my own spreadsheet oh, of um, every newspaper. Was it colour-coded? Well? <laughs> it, it was colour-coded. Yes! Um, of every um, local, um, regional and, and um, national newspaper, uh, and the same with the magazines, um, anyone that, that um, either had cars in them or I thought cars would be a natural fit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I um, browsed online and, and, um, and bought newspapers and magazines and, and um, had a look at it and, and decided, well, you know, if they got car coverage, if it was being done by an existing journalist, then they were out because yeah. I've never wanted to steal people's jobs. If I looked at it and thought, well, they've got car coverage, but there's no, no byline there, and that just looks like PR puff to me. Yeah. That's 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 game on, um, and if if um, if they hadn't got car coverage, but I thought it could probably be a good fit, then then um, then then that that was a, a bit of a no brainer. Um, and so but it's again, a case of picking up. Well, you're doing you know knocking on people's doors effectively. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and again, if anybody listening to this is thinking about freelancing, um, I hope it's coming through that you're getting the message that uh, you've got to treat it professionally, and. You've got to do, you know, some of the unsexy stuff, which is set up the ability to earn money, which yeah. means you you do need to create a spreadsheet of here's the contacts I have, here's the contacts I'd like, you know, here's possible outsiders. You know, like you've done with the things and gone, right, now I can focus my energies on contacting mm-hmm. these various people. This is how I'll speak to them. Yeah. And this is what I hope to get out at the end of it. And then, you know, that means this is all continues to be a viable real thing that I can continue to do yes and that reminds me the other thing I did is very early on um, I paid a guy a few hundred pounds um, to design a business card um, which I thought was important because I wanted a business card that I could I could give to people that they would keep on their desks now it started off the idea with with um, crime um, so that you know if they had a story breaking I would my card would be the one they'd see and they'd, they'd give me a call. That didn't work. Um, but it's still a pretty cool business card. It, it won the designer all sorts of um, awards. Still, if, if you Google Carlton Boy's business card, it'll come up a picture of it. And it's based on Hunter S. Thompson's 1971 press pass. Um, and it's just something that's a bit different and people remember. And, you know, I, I, I have an unusual name. Uh, and the two together means that if I talk to somebody in an event and I give them a business card, they tend to remember me and have a fairly high hit rate of people either responding to my emails to follow up or, or they'll email me. Mm. So, you know, it's, it, that, that's made the whole job of making contacts easier. Mm. So, you know, that, that's my other tip if, if people are interested is, you know, have a really strong identity on your business card and, and invest in it. I mean, these cost nearly a pound each to produce because they're all hand-pressed and there's a little photograph of me stuck by hand on each one. Um, but it's it, absolutely invaluable. You mm. know, they, they paid for themselves many, many times over. Yeah. So, um, right, you've got your spreadsheet of badgering. Mm. You're, ready to, you're ready to go. And it, it, was it just a case of... I'm going to call X amount today or email them or whatever it was. Or did you just go, right, I'm starting at the top and I'm working all the way through? It was, it was pretty much like that. Um, because I'd been doing this social media work almost full time for almost two years, um, I'd still got some outlets, but you know, I, I hadn't been chasing work. I kind of dropped off the, the radar of the 
car company PRs. So it, it was you know, a full-time job in itself for a couple of months to, to kind of get back onto the scene. Um, and I ended up emailing Saga mm-hmm. magazine and um, heard nothing, which is not unusual. I mean, I would guess 99 out of 100 emails you'll never hear anything from. And um, as is my want, after a week or so, I, on the calendar it pings up the colour code that I need to chase up a week later because I, mm-hmm. I would chase people once and then if I didn't hear anything, I'd leave it. Chased Saga up and got a very nice response um, from um, from Saga saying, yes, actually, that, that sounds like it might be a good fit for us. Um, leave it with us. We'll have some chats and get back to you. And I heard nothing more. I, I kind of forgot about it, to be honest. And after about six months, I, I had a day where I had not much on, and I'm, I'm a great believer in thinking. I, I think you know, not many of us have enough time to think these days. So I had my feet up on the desk and um, was thinking what I could do to, to gain more outlets. And um, I thought, oh, Saga never got back to me. So I emailed my contact at Saga and said, um, oh, hi, just... Wondered how the talks went. And the long story cut short is essentially they had the conversations. They wanted to employ me to do some car stuff for them. Um, but they'd lost my contact details. They'd also, one of them thought the other person was, was trying to chase it down. And the other, so I'd fall in the cracks. And she said, I was just about to email someone else to offer them the job today you know your timing couldn't have been more perfect so again this comes back to this luck thing that you know and but so you I, but yeah, now right I, I get sniffy about people saying look you've got to put yourself in the position in the first place for that to happen so it isn't luck is a very glib word that people use because they don't they don't uh remember or acknowledge that actually there was hard work beforehand it, it was serendipitous timing there you certainly. go I'll, I'll allow that certainly i'll allow that one <laughs> um and saga turned out to be the best company to work for the people are so supportive in a genuine way you mm-hmm. know they they have this ethos that you know if one person succeeds we all succeed and they paid well, and they paid on time, and the commissions came flooding in. Um, and I ended up writing about all sorts for Saga, not just cars. They would say, do you know any barbecue recipes? Well, of course. I wrote about male grooming. I wrote clothing reviews. Um, I wrote about all sorts. Technology. And, you know, I, I still have a very, very strong relationship with Saga. I reach a million people a month in them print magazine and several hundred thousand more um, via the website and they're just the nicest people to work with well that that must be um nice but it, it, that must be really enjoyable then because there's there's so many times you work with people and it's made harder than it needs to be just through silliness and yes. daftness so if you find a group of people or a company or something where one they pay on time yeah you know irrespective of the amount if they pay on time that you you go towards the top of the list let alone if they pay well um but it to to then make that whole process where you don't go oh i've got to work for them now i've got to do the thing for them because that will that has the danger of infecting what you're doing yes and then you're going to be miserable and not enjoy the thing you stop to try and enjoy yeah <laughs> 
And I was lucky. I, I, I worked initially for a, a, a lady called Claire, and then uh, she moved on to a different part of the business, and then Amanda. And there were the people that if you saw you'd got an email from them, you couldn't wait to open it because you knew it was going to be lovely. <laughs> you know, you, some of yeah. your bosses, you, you get an email, oh, this is just going to be painful, and it's I'm going to be blamed for something. I'll leave it till tomorrow, whatever. Yeah, but these ones, and, you know, on occasions, you know, I made cock-ups like we all do, and I knew I could pick the phone up or email them and say, look, I've dropped the ball on this one. I've made a mistake. This could come back to bite us. I'm really sorry. This is how I suggest we solve it. And I never once got even the slightest sense of irritation um, with me because mm. their attitude was, we all make mistakes. You put your hands up, we can solve it. Just it Sounds relax. like it's adults, it, grown-ups. It, 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 wonderful, wonderful. And the same with, with, with Katie, the magazine editor, um, and Simon, the deputy editor. They're just lovely, lovely people. And, you know, I, I put in copy and they always, for the print magazine, they always email me and say, oh, it's terrific, Carlton. Then they put it in front of the sub-editors who actually make it terrific, genuinely terrific this time. <laughs> and then the designers make it look terrific on the page. And they come back and they go, oh, you've, you've knocked it out of the ballpark this month, Carlton. You think, no, no, what I sent you and what's, what's actually happened in print are two very different things. And yeah, but over, over time, when you get used to the, the way that they work and the way that they like something to look on the page, did, did, that, did you adapt your writing style yes. to make uh, that process a bit oh, easier? Oh, absolutely. But the sub-editors, however, however good I think my copy is, and sometimes you send it off with a smug, yeah, they're not going to need to change a word of that. Whenever they send it through for approval, I was looking at it, oh, you've done it again. That's so much better than what I wrote. And that's the trick. Sub-editors are the unsung heroes in our industry. I mean, you know, we all, we all think we sub-edit well, and then you send it to a professional, and they, they just they, they turn good copy into great copy. Mm. When you're writing uh, for Saga, did, did you um, have to approach it in a certain way? Did you... How did you tailor your your words? Um, the, the guidance with Saga was always you write for somebody who's 20 years younger than the, their actual age. So they're, 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 one of Saga's challenges is, is to draw a younger audience. Uh, they appeal to people aged 50 uh, and over, um, and their audience tends to be at the older the older end of, of that scale. So the challenge was to attract people, essentially my age, I'm, I'm 49 ne- next birthday. Um, and uh, you know, you're clearly much younger than me, but you know, in my mind, and I guess it's the same for you and everyone else, you still think you're about 30. You accept you're not a teenager in your 20s, but you, know, you don't think, well, actually, I'm, I'm 50 nearly. And so you know, in my mind, I just try and think, well, if I'm writing for Saga, I need to write for, for the 30-year-old in me. Yeah. And I've always tried to write for me. Because I think if I find it interesting, I can't be the only one. I mean, sometimes <laughs> sometimes I probably am the only one. But it's to try and write for this kind of 30-year-old market. Mm-hmm. And that has been a bit of a struggle with some car manufacturers to, to say to them, look, actually, Mr. or Mrs. PR, you're in the saga demographic, and I bet you don't feel like an old person. Yeah. The overwhelming majority of saga readers do not feel like old people. No. What they What they think is... Actually, we've probably got a little bit more cash than we've ever had before in our lives. We've got a little bit more spare time and a lot more motivation to go out and spend that doing the things that make us happy. 
Uh, and it's been a real struggle with some manufacturers to get that across that these people are your ideal customers. This this is the demographic that's actually going to buy your vehicles. Some, um, there's always a danger of, of forgetting some, but, but Ford and Volvo, for example, absolutely get it. You know, they, they have been the two most supportive manufacturers for, for kind of the saga audience because they understand. Um, other people have, have, have said to me, no, we're not engaging. We do not want to appeal to that, that demographic. Even though we accept they're the demographic that buy our vehicles, it doesn't fit with the branding. <laughs> yeah, we want young and sexy. Well, I, it was inter- interesting you should mention that because uh, recently I was um, in a group of uh, merchant journalists who were chatting away. And somebody said, do you remember the last time a car came out that didn't have sporty and aimed at young people in all the stuff? He said, can, can you think of a car that, di- that didn't explicitly say those things? And I, oh, God, no. Actually, that's a point. Everybody's, everybody's got their marketing stuff of, uh, for the youth market who have no cash. So, or is the idea that they're appealing to you were saying there the younger people, older people, but young at heart? Mm. And I don't think that always that message always gets across. No, no, no. I'm I'm sure it doesn't. Mm. So, um, I'd like to ask you about your car history because I'm I think there might be a few cracks. You've already dropped a couple in. I have. I have. So, did you pass your test? When was it? You were 17? No, I was 18 when I passed my test. I'd been driving for 10 years by then. Um, and so I just got forgot. a bit just cocky. Forgot. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I could opposite... Oh, got... God, yeah. Sorry, I need to get it legal, don't I? <laughs> so I took my first test, failed. Took my second test, failed. And I still can't remember if I passed on my third time or failed three times. But either way, it was a crushing blow to my ego. And I was 18 before I'd, I got my driving licence and um, I drove on the roads. So what was was it, uh, do you think, cockiness? Oh, it was cockiness. I, I, I knew better. I didn't need to look where I was going. Indication was, was, was probably fairly random. I do remember, I think it was our first test reversing around the corner. I drove into the kerb. Oh, OK, yeah. Um, That's fair so, enough. yeah, I clearly wasn't as good a driver as I thought <laughs> I was. Um, it was because you had the other arm behind the t- <laughs> behind the seat, and you were doing it one-handed, spinning it round. <laughs> it was probably exactly like that. Um, so yes, so eventually I got my um, I got my uh, I, I got my driving license. What did you drive first? My first car was a bright green um, Citroen Two CV. Wonderful, and I bought that when I was I think. About 15 when I bought that, and there's a network of private roads, gravel tracks behind where I lived. And so I drove it around on there for a while and kept it for a surprising long time. I think my mum drove it for a couple of years as well. But anyway, that, that was my first road car, was a, a bright green Citroen 2CV. And perfectly not having too much power for, yes. for the new driver. Yes. Just enough to get around, but not perhaps too much to get yourself into serious trouble. Well, there was a gang of us used to um, used to hang around, uh, and this was in mid-Derbyshire, and they all had Citroen GSs, which were Show 65 off. brake horsepower, something like that. You know, phenomenal road holding, but not desperately powerful. Um, and so, yeah, that taught me the value of actually being able to drive mm. um, and not relying on power. Um, so the two CV was ideal, and that was followed up by 
four Citroen GSs um, on the balance. We're, we're developing a theme of a uh, we'll go with comfortable suspension setup. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and the, the GSs were incredible. Um, I mean, I was buying three-year-old cars that had failed their first MOT on structural corrosion. Can you imagine doing pounds. that today? Can you imagine? Was, and the fact is, nobody batted an eyelid, really. They, it was just, well, it's French, it's a Citroën. Mm. So, you know, we'd bodged these things up, and we genuinely knew, and I'm not making this up, a one-eyed alcoholic MOT tester. <laughs> but if you took the car to him in the afternoon... It would be a pass. <laughs> you know, there was no point. You know, friends of mine said, "Oh well, you know, I can get you a blank ticket. You write your own." Well, what's the point? I'll just pay the going rate and take it to this chap. Um, so yeah, Citroen GS is one wonderfully comfortable suspension. You know, we did used to do the, the old thing of taking one of the rear wheels off and then driving it around for a while and watching people's faces <laughs> uh, because we were teenagers and idiots. Um, and my daughter is so much like me in her personality and she wonders why I worry so much about the stuff she's up to well this is it because I remember what I did and think well you're the same as me so you're going to want to do the same kind of stuff um, I bought a Triumph Spitfire which was awful 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 vehicle um, not inherently so just the example I bought um, and ended up selling it after a few weeks um, and sold it to the lady who took the advert over the phone in the Derby Evening Telegraph classified section she sent her boyfriend around that night, and he paid the uh, the asking price. So that that was, um, I was going to say lucky, but not lucky. <laughs> what a fortuitous about fortuitous. <laughs> so, what did you have after the? I, well, I had a series of Citroen GSs, and then moved on to Mark One Golf GTIs. Okay, um, now now we are moving away from the very comfy suspension setup. Well, you say that, but it was 175 70, 13 tyres. Okay. So there was still an awful lot of compliance in the tyres. The suspension... But that wasn't the <clears> thing, <throat> though. It wasn't. It, it wasn't renowned for its good ride, no. Um, that must but, have been so, a hoot, though, driving around in those. Oh, I travelled all over the UK with, with Halfords. We were <clears throat> setting up superstores. We would... A load of us would descend on a town and we would help build the fixtures and then put the stock on the shelves and do staff training and all that kind of stuff. And so I would hoon all over the country in this Mark 1 Golf GTI um, on expenses. And it was just, it was genuinely living the dream. I had some terrific drives between Derby and Norwich on the A47 late at night. And I still remember them. Um, just incredible. Mm. Absolutely just that feeling of being in the dark. At speed, no one else is around. Good sight lines through the corners. Some nice constant radius corners. You can see headlights if people are coming. And just getting out at the end and thinking, you know what? That was amazing. Mm. That, that, was, that was perfect. <laughs> or not. I'm thinking, well, I'll, I'll nail it when yeah. I come back the same journey next week. Nowadays, you'd probably have that. Uh, you could download the drive from a USB stick or something. Yes, yes, and, and analyse it. Well, we had the trip computers. You remember them? We were very basic. And um, I remember the time again. Yeah, it makes me sound very irresponsible when I was young. My grandparents lived in Wiltshire, and I lived in London at the time. And I'd been to see my grandparents, and I tucked in behind a Porsche 911 on the A303 just outside Mir and stayed with him until we hit the M25. And my average speed... Was I, that above 
it was, I mean, I, you know, I, don't, I used to be obsessed with average speed. And if you're driving on a motorway, you'd think your average speed could be 70 or close to. Well, actually, that's very difficult to, to maintain high average speeds for high periods, of, for, for long periods of time. Mm. Um, but my average speed was remarkable. And um, it was it was after that that journey. I remember thinking, you know what, this there has to be more to driving than, than high average speeds because I'm kind of quite pleased with myself. My car tire enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> Awful um, lot of concentration. Yes, but that was the yeah, early form of data logging, wasn't it? It was just having your average speed up and saying, right, I'm going to maintain sixty miles an hour or whatever, yeah. or as close to it as possible. Or or the sensible version, which I used to do sometimes when I was poor, was saying, well. You know, the average fuel consumption is 35. I'm going to make sure it stays above 35 for the whole journey. Mm. So, Yeah, hypermiling. hypermiling. Okay, so um, how many how many Mark 1 Golfs did you go through? I had a Mark 1, 1. 1.6 silver oh. in 1982, and then I moved up to the 1.8 in the lovely Lassa Green um, for a while. And then I, I did buy another one. I bought a few years later, uh, my then brother-in-law, um, ran a car auction and he had a 1.6 silver very early one with the cowl dials and the Czech tartan seats oh, yeah. that he persuaded me was restorable and it, it absolutely I lived in a flat in London and it just sat outside <laughs> so you every, park on the balcony <laughs> every single scene on it was rotten not just a bit rotten just rotten oh no um, and then later on I bought a blue Helios blue 1.8 which again was glorious um, so I have had four in total. Three actually worked. And, and some people dream of just getting one. Oh, yeah, it was, you know, it was those cars. I mean, I, I did drive one years later and thought, I can't believe how uncomfortable it is, how noisy it is, how slow it is, how heavy the steering is. But that's 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 progress, isn't it? Yeah. You know, at the time, it, 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 was, yeah, it was incredible. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. So would you move on to after then? Well, my next one is a Spartan kit car. Okay. I know. A friend of mine, I'd, I'd sold the Golf. I don't know why I sold the Golf. I probably got bored. And he said, now I've seen this Spartan, and he was into his classic British roadster, so I've seen this Spartan kit car for sale. And um, You fancied a near-death experience? Well, I said, I know nothing about Spartan kit cars. He said, mate of mine's a helicopter mechanic. He'll come with us. Okay. I know your face is... is you understand the situation better than I did at the time. So we went to look at this spot, and this guy crawled around. He said, yeah, it's great. Buy it. So I did. <laughs> How then, great was it? <laughs> well, the next day, <laughs> I was taking my ex-wife to hospital for an operation when the bonnet flew off, <laughs> folded itself neatly over the windscreen, and disappeared into the ditch. So we carried on, dropped her off at hospital. Came back, I'm trying to find this bonnet. But find it eventually. By golly, you've got fantastic airflow into that engine now. <laughs> and I just go around a bend, and I just spun the thing. And I was, I was in a village, and you know, regardless of my irresponsible motoring history, I always stick to the limit or lower in villages. Always. Mm. It, it's... So I was doing well, well under 30, and just spun this thing. And lost the bonnet again. It flew <laughs> out to the back across the road. So I'm trying to track this thing, and I find my mate and said, look, you know, can you ask your helicopter mechanic mate, come and have a look at my Spartan? Because it's, it's something not right with this thing. And eventually, this yes, before mobile phones, I got hold of this guy at home. And he went, well, you can't blame me. I said, well, you're a helicopter mechanic. He went, 
Yeah, I know an awful lot about helicopters, but I know mm. nothing about Spartan kit cars. <laughs> Is that? I don't know if it's any good or not. And it turned out there were a couple of bushes on the rear suspension were was so badly worn that it was essentially passive steering. And but we kind of got that sorted out. But it was I drove it through the winter and it, no no functioning heater. The hood was awful. It was it was so bad that when somebody offered to swap it for a Talbot Horizon. I snapped the hand off and had six of the most glorious months motoring because the heater worked, the seats were comfortable and the roof didn't leak. Yeah, it's August, it's 40 months. degrees outside. I don't care, I've got the heating on. I, you, do not, you do not know what I've been through. So, so I had to tell the Horizons that it's failed its MOT so spectacularly that this is back in 1993-ish. It was two and a half grand's worth of work plus, plus fat. The garage produced the bill just, just, just for a laugh to see how high it could be. Buy a new one, couldn't you, for that? Well, we, we obviously binned it then and moved on to a lovely low-mileage Renault, uh, Renault 5, 1.4 TS automatic, mm. power steering. Mod cons and everything. Oh, it was perfect. It was a lovely little city car. Really, really good fun. I had very fond memories of that. Okay, and then uh, what's after that? Oh, uh, then there was the Silver Golf that um, never actually went anywhere. And then we moved on to a Citroen BX. Okay, 1.6 TGS. Uh, Again, phenomenal car. Yes, I loved mine. I should not have got rid of mine. It's so comfortable, so quick, so easy to drive. Quick so because the panels don't weigh anything. Yeah, it was, it was lovely. And I, I quite like the look of it too. It's, yeah, you know, very, very fond terrific. of it. And it had the lovely suspension that would go up and down. Yeah. My wife would say, are you playing with that stupid suspension again? <laughs> Yes, I am, dear. This is one of the reasons I have this car. Please be quiet and allow me this moment of pleasure. <laughs> I used to go out and find Fords to cross just so I could stop and raise the suspension and then drive and then lower it. Two inches of water was enough. Right, yeah. suspension's coming up. Is everyone watching? Like, pay attention. Look at this magic. <laughs> um, so go on then, after and, that. And, and there was a Citroen, there was a Citroen specialist that set up in... We lived in this little village outside Holt in Norfolk. And he'd set up a mile away, a Citroen specialist, he charged oh. £5 an hour. <gasps> £5 an hour. Um, so he looked after this BX for me. And, you know, any job that needed doing, he'd just go, oh, because at £5 an hour, why wouldn't you? So I supplemented that with this Helios Blue Golf GTI, so two-car family. Um, and then I joined the prison service. So I started to think, well, I should be a bit more sensible. So I brought a, an almost new Fiat Bravo 1.4. Oh, it was okay, you know. Okay. It was okay. We got it through the brother-in-law and the car auction, so it didn't cost me a lot of money for it. I think it was a year-old car at the time. So it was okay. I drove it for two years. It was very reliable. Very. It was? Okay, good. Yeah, no, it was, it was great. No, it was, it, I mean, dull. Dull beyond belief. But, you know, I was... The, the prison service training college was in um, near Rugby, and I lived in Norfolk, so it was a fair old slog. Mm. So I just wanted something that was comfortable and then... Well, as long as it was reliable, that's the main thing. And then I drove an hour and something each way to work at the first prison from where I lived. So, you know, it was cheap to run. It was, it was fine. Okay. It, was, it was my first introduction as car as a utility piece of equipment. So did you have uh, an almost um, opposite reaction to this safe, little bit dull car than in your next one? No, well, the next one I, I was... Um, <laughs> A Land Rover Discovery, an old 200 TDI three-door. Okay. Um, yeah. I still was that not quite sure I understood that one either. Better choices, perhaps? No, probably not. It was 
probably more sensible than the, the 110 TDI that replaced it there, <laughs> in terms of driving an hour and a half each way at this stage to, um, oh, to, to my next prison. I can see Alan just shaking his head sadly now listening to this. Well, it was twisty country roads as well. It made no sense whatsoever. <laughs> Your bruised elbow for it. Oh, it was... It looked incredible because I had a roof tent on it, obviously, because yeah. when you the safari roof rack, a yeah. snorkel, yeah. spotlights, mm-hmm. A-frame on the front, side steps. I mean, it looked incredible. It looked incredible. The perfect one-hour commuting vehicle. Yeah. If you happen to uh, live in the jungle or need to f- climb every mountain. <laughs> I... I yeah, yeah, I, I, it, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. And it, it took me back to my Citroen days because I bought it at three years old. It was the, still the second most expensive vehicle I've ever bought. No, third now. Um, I bought it at three years old, went into the fourth MOT, and the bulkhead had a hole in it from rust. Three this years. is a four-year-old four vehicle. Four-year-old. And, and at that point, I looked in and thought, I, I need to get out of this mm. quickly. See why they become money pits. Yeah, so I, I, I got out of that um, and bought uh, an Alfa Romeo one five six two litre twin spark. Well, that's an incredibly fantastic choice. It was awesome, awesome, and I got the Alfa Bug quite badly then. In that, I bought a um, a GTV Julia, the one hundred five series coupe for hard days and holidays, which was easily the most expensive car I've ever owned. <laughs> I. Drove it back from the chap I bought it from, put it in the garage because it, um, yeah, it was a high days and holidays car. I was so busy with work and family stuff that I then got moved or I moved to Leeds and I was going to be living in a hotel for three months and they wouldn't pay for garaging for this, this Alpha. So I sold it at a huge loss um, and worked out the cost was several hundred pounds per mile of, of having driven it. It, it was made no sense whatsoever. Um, so uh, that, that was a beautiful thing to own and that set me along the path of realising that for me at least I can gain 90% of the pleasure of owning a car by buying the 118th scale model of it okay. and that's what I because the Alpha was the 105 beautiful thing to look at and yeah, it was quite nice to drive but if I think you know in my life at the time how often I would take a car out just for the sheer hell of it yeah, was, yeah. was pretty limited really so now I have this, this, this hard and fast rule. If I fancy something a bit different, I buy the 118 scale model and put it there and I look at it. And if after six months I still want one, I think that's probably more than a passing crush. Okay, that's wise. That's wise. As your bank manager says, very wise. Well, I mean, even at, you know, a couple of hundred quid for a decent model, it's still cheaper than yeah. the Alpha. Oh, I, I lost thousands and thousands on that. So what was... Uh... What did you then get so that you could go to a hotel in Leeds? A Range Rover Classic. Okay. <laughs> V8. Right. Oh, because, yeah. Um, of course. Well, I V8. figured I was driving two or three miles from the hotel in the city centre to Leeds Prison. So fuel consumption was an irrelevance. So I, I, had, I had them up then. I had uh, one, two, three, four, five six Range Rover Classics. Not necessarily back-to-back. The first three were back-to-back. They were interspersed with the stuff, but I, I developed a bit of a fetish for Range Rover Classics. God, think about it now. If you threw some straw over the bonnet. Oh, 
name your price. Yeah, yeah. And there, there were a few. I mean, the, the, I had one which was the the LSE, the soft dash, which kind of kicked off the whole motor journalist gig. I paid four thousand pounds for that, sight unseen, and the chap um, said it had been owned by an airline that had used it to ferry people from central London to Heathrow and back. And then the chairman had bought it, and then he'd sold it to his best friend who taken it out to Spain with him. So it's a 24,000 mile car, it was 1994, so it was maybe 10 years old. So I arranged to meet him off the ferry with £4,000 in cash in a bag. <laughs> Not at all dodgy in well, any way. Just thinking there are so many ways this could go wrong. And he came <laughs> off the ferry, and this car was even better than he described it. And all the paperwork was there, and we, we swapped details, he'd even got... You imagine trying to do that today? Oh. It was bonkers, and he literally walked straight back onto the ferry he'd gone off and went back to, to France. <laughs> so, this car was too nice. I mean, it was immaculate. There were a couple of little scuffs on the, the front bumper, which I got sorted. Um, and I realised it was too nice because we went to a Land Rover off-roading day with the kids, and they wanted us to do the off-road course. And I said, it's never been off-road in its life. It's flawless. I'm not taking it off-road now. At that point, I was like, kind of lost the plot. I, I bought something that was just too nice. Next, you'll be putting it in a museum, and just people can look at it rather yeah. than you drive it. So I sold that for £8,000 within about three months, which I thought was pretty decent. That's not bad. But actually, um, there's a couple of dealers saw the advert, phoned me up, and offered me way more than that, but it was gone. Oh. And I look back now, if I just garaged that and sold it now, it would be... Oh, you, we can't do that. We, can't, we, can, we cannot... Go back and think that. We'd cry a lot. <laughs> um, so anyhow, I, I, I had a, I'd realised that the Range Rover wasn't necessarily the ideal city car <laughs> for me. So I bought a, a BMW 530 Touring 3-litre V8 instead, because that seemed to make much more sense. And that was the E34, I believe. Fantastic car. Unbelievable. Gen- just brilliantly built. Great fun to drive, just it brilliant apart from the fuel consumption, which was even worse than the Range Rovers. So it's yeah. So I then bought a Renault Megane 1.5 diesel. Oh, okay. it's, it's you know kind of a Fiat Brara all, yeah. all over again. Yeah, um, but it was you. I'm guess it was sounds like it was bought for a specific reason. Yes, I thought I'd be moving to a different prison to work, which is about 30 miles away. So I thought, this is perfect, 50 miles per gallon. Again, it was two, three years old, dead reliable. It was fine. And it, it did a job. Yeah. Um, but it was boring. <laughs> it was so boring. So I went Another back to Range Rovers. Another white goods. Yeah, went back, three, three Range Rovers back to back then. Okay. Um, and then my wife's father-in-law had a Porsche 911 Carrera, three-litre Carrera, 1977. Oh. That was owned by originally by um, Imbiracos, the Greek shipping magnate, mm-hmm. who had the custom Bentley built. Thing. And this this nine eleven was immaculate. It was lovely dark metallic green with almost orangey tan leather seats. It was the perfect spec for a seventies nine eleven. And he said, "Drive it for as long as you like, and um, when you get bored, sell it and give me the money." So I drove that for a while. My wife didn't like it. It was very noisy. Um, not very comfortable and she didn't like it so consequently if we went away for the weekend if we managed to get rid of the kids um, we never took the Porsche because she didn't really enjoy being in it certainly didn't want to drive it Um, 
so um, so we got rid of that and um, I bought a Mazda MX-5 as my everyday driver sports mm -hmm. car yeah. which still I think is probably the finest all-around vehicle I've ever owned for what I had at the time I lived in the city and um, you know I used to drive out um, probably 30 mile journey twice a week into the North Yorkshire Dales um, and it, it was perfect and slightly fruitier exhaust I fitted Lotus Elise seats because I'm quite tall and that gave me a bit more headroom um, and a lovely Momo Prototipo steering wheel and it was perfect Alan is now punching the air perfect. with joy and shouting, yes, you see everyone, I'm right. He is. He is. <laughs> right, I'm going to edit that. <laughs> <laughs> so then after this, the the most perfect car you've you've owned, what did you, what did you get rid of it for? Well, no, I, well, we moved to Wales. We did bring it to Wales with us. We, we okay. got a Subaru. So you fitted some oars then at that point <laughs> in Wales. Um. We'd, we'd got a Subaru Forester as our family car at that stage. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so with the Forester and the MX-5, so in many respects, a dream garage. Yes. Um, so we came to Wales and um, we were setting up a and b at the time and I was still trying to develop my career. Uh, so I had a series of press cars. I had a press car every week at the time and my wife had the Subaru. And um, the MX-5 just sat there and did nothing. Mm. Um and again, instead of just putting it in a corner of the garage and thinking, I'll get back to it at some point, it was just deteriorating. You, know, you could almost see it. Mm. So we sold it. Um, clearly the wrong decision. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, yes, and that, 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 that's the one and only MX-5 I've ever had. I, I suspect there will be, there will be others. But, um, hmm. So then after that... And oh. in between all these press cars? <laughs> well, in between that, my, my father-in-law had a Jaguar Mark II 3.8. Okay. Um, which, again, same deal. Use it for as long as you like and um, sell it and give me some cash when you've sold it. So I'd smoked around in Leeds in that for a while. That's my daily driver. <laughs> and it was incredible. It, it almost halved my commuting time because you would <laughs> arrive at a junction and people would fall over themselves to let you out. And it was no road rage. People would wave and smile and let you out. And it was just a joy to drive. It was great fun to drive as well. Real hooligan's car. But it, the whole package, I mean, hideously unreliable. It probably broke down one in three journeys. Oh, my God. But, um, yeah, it, it was a joy. And that was on the back of the, the, the Porsche where no one would let you out. Uh. And I had two people threaten to punch me just because I was a Porsche driving idiot. Oh, nice. Apparently. Nice. So, you know, it was two ends of the, of the spectrum there. Um, I sold the MX-5. My wife, we sold the Subaru Forester as well. We needed something a bit bigger. So we got a, a Subaru Legacy, the three-litre Spec B, mm -hmm. um, with a Bilstein suspension. It was That was glorious. That was... Quick? Very. very. <laughs> um, Round here. Yes. Four-wheel drive, that engine. Ooh, Round here, that sounds drive. quite nice. Oh, we had winter tyres on it, which still gripped fine in the summer, but did mean, you know, no matter what the weather really, you were mobile and mobile pretty quickly. <laughs> um, so that that was a glorious indulgence. Um, and I sold out and bought a Mitsubishi Lancer Evo 1. Okay. One the very first ones. Um, saw it advertised on the internet. I wanted an Impreza, an early Impreza. Saw this Evo one, which was white, which is a colour I don't like. 
uh, kept coming back to it and phoned the chap eventually and said, I'm interested in your ego. He said, I've sold it. I'm really sorry. He said, it's just gone within the hour. Okay, hung up. Sat there and thought, I want that car. So I phoned him and said, look, it's me again. It's advertised at three grand. I said, I'm guessing you didn't sell it for three grand. He went, oh, I said, I, I don't want to know. I'll pay you three, three. I'll give you 10% premium if you'll let me jump the queue. I said, don't feel bad if you think it's a, a morally dubious thing to do because it clearly is. <laughs> I'm not a nice person for even <laughs> suggesting it, but I want that car. He said, if you can be here before 12 o'clock tomorrow with £3,300 in your hand, you've got a deal. So I had to source, this was in the evening, I had to source £3,000, £3,300, and get to um, near Durham from North Wales by midday the next day. So anyway, we did it. And it was a glorious car. It was owned initially. It got no paperwork with it at all because um, it was an import. And um, But he said, I bought it from a guy called Ryan Champion, who's a, a rally driver. Okay. Drove the car back and it was fabulous, completely original, but for the wheels, and it got these hideous blue mud flaps on. Mm-hmm. So I took the mud flaps off, sourced a set of original wheels, had them refurbished, and put them on. And it looked amazing, very, very stealthy, even with a big wing. It, it was nice, very narrow. Contacted Ryan Champion, who turns out again to be one of the nicest men <laughs> in the world. Um, he said, Yeah, he said, my dad, my dad runs a garage, we run a garage. I can, I'll, PDF, you all do paperwork for it. No problem at all. So I ended up with a, a car with full history in the UK. He did a load of stuff for it. And, um, you know, he's the nicest chap. But we're still in touch via Twitter. And, um, you know, he's, he's a really nice bloke. Um, but I had a hankering for a, a Honda NSX at this stage. <laughs> and I, I, I wrote an article. And I looked back. Uh, well, I've written something very similar before a few years ago. And you started to compare the prices and, and they rocketed in value. So I thought, well, I need to get into one quickly or I'll never be able to afford one. So I sold the Evo to um, a guy who used to be um, Lewis Hamilton's karting teammate. So he was pretty handy behind the wheel. Again, lovely bloke. Um, and found at the time the cheapest NSX for sale in the UK um, in Blackpool, just outside Blackpool. Went to see it and it needed some work. I think he was asking 37, which was, it was optimistic. Um, I didn't really want it, if I'm honest. With I can say it now, I've sold it. I didn't really want it. It, it didn't give me good vibes. That car or that, the NSX? That, that, no, that particular example. Oh, okay, right. But I couldn't afford anything else. Mm-hmm. Everything else was out of my price range. So I said to him, I'll give you 28. And he said, um, oh, I can't do 28. That's fine. I, you know, I, I'm not trying to insult you. That that's all I've got. It's not an opening gambit in a negotiation. That's all I can afford. But he'd married a, a woman from Croatia, and they got a child, and his wife and child were in Croatia. So I knew he needed to get rid of this NSX, and I knew he needed to get it done soon. So it's the only car I've ever bought. Or I tried to talk him out of accepting my £28,000 offer. <laughs> and in the end, to my genuine horror, he said yes. <laughs> and I'd always thought I'd had this kind of James Bond-type nonchalance that I could throw the best part of thirty grand down on the table, pick up the keys and walk off with a smile on my face. 
And I realised, I'm not James Bond. <laughs> I didn't sleep that night. Didn't sleep very well the night after or the night after that. Because I thought, what the hell have I done? This is, this is our family's life savings on a car that I was trying to talk the guy out of selling me. So I drove it home, picked it up a few days later when I got the cash, drove it home, and it was hideous. It was oh, awful. No. And again, I got home, and I, 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 still, I can feel myself feeling sick now at the thought of, of how I felt arriving home with this thing. And I kept telling myself, it's on crappy coilover suspension and age-hardened tyres. It, it'll be fine. So I bought, bought new tyres, had the wheels refurbed, bought new suspension, had that fitted by the local garage, who serviced it for me as well. And my local garage is old school. They like their classic cars. And when I went to pick it up, I said, what's the verdict? And he smiled and went, it's lovely. Nothing wrong with that at all. Goodbye. At which point I started to relax. <laughs> I then took the suspended, the car with the new, the, I got some um, OE equipment suspension from a low mileage car that he was converted to coilovers, put on it, drove it to um, a place in the West Midlands called Centre Gravity, which everyone told me were the best place for car geometry. Got it set up, drove it home, and it lived up to all my expectations on new rubber with proper suspension geometry and suspension. <laughs> it was a dream, absolute dream. It was a wonderful, wonderful car. Um, and I, yeah, I spent a couple of years sourcing an original radio for it because that had all been ripped out. The individual amplifiers for the speakers. Um, getting, I changed, had the ABS changed from the Series 1 to the, the last of the Series 1, which is a proper four-channel ABS system. Uh, and it was, it was glorious, absolutely glorious. Um, and we made a small profit on it, which was the intention. It was... My argument was we're making nothing on the money in the bank, so you know, let's have some fun instead. Mm -hmm. And we did. And it was it's one of those landmark cars that I consider myself privileged to have been able to own, albeit only for a couple of years. No, that's cool. That's cool. So then after that goes uh, Citroen's anti Ah. Which again is a bucket list car. Always wanted one, you know, fully active suspension. Yeah. And there was a it was advertised on the internet, some forum guy was advertising it and saying, Look, I want a thousand pounds for it, that's what I paid for it. It's one of those cars that really should make its way from one person to another. Um, and um, again, I bought it sight unseen. I paid somebody on um, on the internet to pick it up with a car trailer for 300 quid or something, brought it to me, exactly as described. Absolute hoot to drive. <laughs> um, ferocious road holding. I mean, not very satisfying to drive. Um, but incredibly quick, he tweaked the engine slightly, the diesel engine. Um, road holding was amazing. And um, yeah, kept that for a few months. Really uncomfortable driving position for me though. Um, and I, I bought it as a kind of sensible day-to-day -day £1,000 um, car. Mm. And um, it just didn't work. It was too uncomfortable. So I sold it to a colleague, Phil Huff. Uh -huh. And uh, he bought it for the £1,000 that I paid. That was the deal. <laughs> Uh, and he promised me when he sold it, he would uh, he would sell it for a thousand pounds on, and we would keep the uh, the chain going that way. And he he sold it. Funny if I went to a friend of mine had a track day, hired the track at Anglesey, and uh, I was driving a pickup at the time as my daily driver. And he said, "Oh yeah, we do these things a couple of times a year. You should get yourself a cheap track car." So I phoned Phil and said, "Phil, have you still got the Activa? Because I know you talked about selling it. I'll have it back because it would be perfect." He went, "I just sold it." So you know. Being uh, being fortuitous works both ways. Yes, that, it does. That it was does. what I missed out on by uh, by a couple of days. 
Okay, and then after that, what, what was your new daily sensible drive? My daily sensible drive was uh, an Isuzu D-Max Arctic Truck 1835. <laughs> it was the most illogical car I've ever bought, and that comes on the back of some fairly illogical really? cars. <laughs> That's a brave statement. Well, I, I had was a press car for a week, and it broke down. We broke it off-road. So it went back, and I had another one came back for a week and we kind of broke that one too but um, I said to my wife I, I want one and she said why I said, I said it's illogical I, I just want one it makes no no sense and there will be never be any comeback if, if you veto this idea you know I won't sulk I won't look back in years to go and go well you wouldn't let me have I said it you know you would be quite right to say no and she said yes You've obviously got a special skill in explaining to someone why they shouldn't do something <laughs> they then go and do. This is, this is You need to bottle that and sell it. <laughs> I do. I do. But, um, yes, yeah, so it's the only new vehicle I've ever bought. It was a hideously expensive um, Isuzu D-Max 8035 with far too many accessories on the front. <laughs> You can't have far too many accessories on the front of one of those. Uh, and it was utterly, utterly glorious. <laughs> I mean, it's <clears throat> the D-Max is not the best pickup on the road today. And an Isuzu D-Max that's been lifted by 50 centimetres and the body made wider and all the rest of it. Not 50 centimetres, 50 millimetres. Um, and that suspension lift. Um, is even less practical, uh, but it was glorious. And literally every single time I got into it, it made me smile, and oh. broadly smile as well. It was just—it's the most ridiculous thing for UK roads, and I loved it dearly. Did, did lorries leap out the way and give you, give way to you and things like that? Is you that... do get a lot of attention. <laughs> Almost all of it positive. It's for wallflowers. A car for wallflowers. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was the three spotlights on the front. <laughs> Because uh, I wasn't going to get them because, um, I mean, they were very expensive. I mean, unjustifiably expensive. And I, so I decided I wasn't. On, on top of, a, some may say, unjustifiable <laughs> purchase in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> and I wasn't going to, um, I wasn't going to buy them. I'd said no to the dealer. And um, I went to see the guys and girls at Arctic Trucks because I thought, well, there's, there's got to be the potential for a feature or two on this. So let me go and talk to the people who built the thing and get some background on why they do what they do and all that kind of stuff. And there's a guy who works there called Steve Gaunt, who I've become very good friends with. And he, he asked me about the lights. Was I getting the lights? I said, no, no, no. You know, I've spent far too much. I cannot justify. I, can't, I still can't bring myself to even say privately with the microphone of how much they cost me. Okay. That's, I said, I can't justify. They, they make no sense. He said, come with me, and there's a workshop underneath their office. And he, he picked one of these lights up, and instead of just having the normal branding on it, it said Arctic Trucks. Okay. At which so, point so, I went, so, so you're now melting. Yeah, yeah. I'll have three, please. <laughs> so I like the whole, the whole Scandinavian three-spotlight look. Um, and so you know, I really am that, that weak and easily led. <laughs> a bit of Arctic Trucks branding, and I'm in. I'm Fantastic. Um, so yes, paid forward my own money and um, loved it, loved it dearly. 
But you don't have that now? I don't have that now. No. Circumstances change. Um, and so now I'm running around in, a, in my engine vehicle is a, a Suzuki Jimny. Which I am massively jealous of. Oh. It is incredible. I have seen it outside and it's fantastic. You need to explain to everybody the sticker on the petrol cap. I do. A, a, a very good friend of mine, um, Nick Pym, he's got a, um, a Jeep Rubicon with a petrol engine. And he, he drives all over Europe and Africa in it. You know, he's, he's a hardcore um, four-wheel driver. And um, whenever he goes to a petrol station, um, particularly in Africa, he said he, he had problems because the attendants assume that any large four-wheel drive is a diesel. So they'd be trying to put diesel in it. And he'd go, no, 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 petrol. And they wouldn't believe him. And he said it, it, it caused problems. He said, so we got this sticker made up, which is, has got the word petrol in about six different languages. For his vehicle, he said, now he has no problems. He just says petrol, points at it. And he said, everyone believes me. And I just thought this was the coolest thing ever. So I said to him, yeah, if, when, I ever have another petrol-powered vehicle, I, I need to know where you got that sticker from because I'll, I'll order one. And he said, well, I designed them myself and got it made up as a you know, limited print run. And yeah, I'm sure the guy would still have the details. You can get one done. Anyway, I bought the Jimny. He saw on, on social media I bought the Jimny. And then the day after I bought this thing, two stickers arrived in the post. So one's on the Jimny now and one's safely pressed in the leaves of my book with all my other special stickers that have got special card on the That's awesome. That is awesome. Um, that, is, that is an amazing history. There are some crackers in there. There are some... Uh, right, I'm going to try and be polite here. Interesting decisions. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, some may even go as far as questionable. <laughs> but but life's easier now, you're a motoring journalist, because you can go, oh, there'll be a story in that somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'm justifying this on many levels, not not just emotional. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the funnier story was uh, when I was in the prison service, we, we used to go through periodic security flaps, and we would get advice well-meaning but ultimately irritating advice through about personal safety and one of the things they said was um, don't drive a distinctive car don't park in the same parking space mm -hmm. every day yeah. and don't have a personalized registration number because it makes it easier for people to identify a car i got really irritated by this unnecessarily so illogically so Yes, because that, that, that's not actually bad advice. No, it's not, but... When they have a duty of care to suggest to people perhaps you need to think about shaking things up and not doing the same routine and things like that. You know, a bit of, a bit of uh, OPSEC. And... There was something about living your life freely rather than living it on your knees. <laughs> that made me buy the registration number C8GOV, CBGov, put it on my green Mazda MX-5 and park it directly outside the front gate every single day for the time I owned it. <laughs> oh, dear. And on the back of that, you know, being threatened in prison is, is not unusual. Um, and generally, the, 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 the fewest number of, of, of um, legitimate death threats, I mean, those were threats that we thought were credible and serious enough to refer to the police. The fewest number ever had outstanding at one time was seven. So, there, yeah, there was very good reasons to have uh, reasonable level operational security. <laughs> but I thought, you know, I'm not living my life according to some random 
distant threat. I'll take you all on one at a time. All together, I don't care. Come on. Yeah, I'd be like the rabbit in Monty Python. <laughs> right, I'm going to move on to the quickfire questions. And I am going to start with what currently excites you about the motoring world? What excites me about the motoring world? I think what excites me about the motoring world is that despite all the pressure to be sensible, ridiculous things still happen. And whether that's something like the McLaren Senna, and when I say ridiculous, I'm not talking about the name, I'm talking about the concept. Yep. Um, Or things like Arctic trucks. The fact that Arctic trucks exist in the UK is a source of constant joy to me. Yes, because it shouldn't, should it? It shouldn't. No one in the UK needs an Arctic truck. No. Except for when you do. For when you do. (laughs) Well, you know, when Aston Martin brings out something ridiculous for the road, and you just think, good on you. Good on you. The Ford Focus RS with drift mode. Now, I know the Daily Mail is, is... God, his neck is in a bit of a twist about you know, road car in drift mode. But the mere fact that a manufacturer like Ford will put its name to something that's got drift mode is glorious. That they will produce a car like the Mustang for under 40 grand is brilliant. <laughs> so the fact that you know, there is all this pressure, quite rightly so, we all need to be more conscious of our, our carbon footprint uh, and the need for sustainable travel and, and finding alterna- alternative sources. But the fact that vehicles like those still exist, I think is wonderful. Okay, I like that. That is an incredibly positive. I do like that. Now, possibly going the other way, a smidge, what currently worries you about the motor world? Now, worries me is data collection Okay. by the motor industry. I think we... We're entering into, it's a bit of a Wild West atmosphere. Mm. And I I have given some some talks on this this subject. It worries me that at the moment the data collection seems to be random, overly intrusive, um, the very opposite of transparent. Um, We don't know how it's being used, where it's being used, who it's being divulged to. Um, And I understand the police's perspective, for example, um, that it can be useful in, in helping solve crimes. But I'm not persuaded that argument works, it runs, um, because the accuracy of the data is hugely questionable, even if we're looking at simple stuff like G-forces and accidents and speeds and braking force. Um, but more widely than that, the stuff that's being collected is disproportionate, and there is no control on who's collecting what and what they're doing with it. Um, and that worries me, genuinely worries me, a lot. And I think we're we're sleepwalking into a situation that we will look back in years to come and think, what the hell were we thinking? Why did we allow that? I completely agree. Right, next question, because otherwise I will talk for (laughs) two or three days about that subject. (laughs) Uh, What's been your favourite car to drive and why is that? My favourite car to drive was the D-Max Arctic truck. Okay, because of the smiles per miles? Because of the smiles per miles. I have driven something else... By Arctic truck that I, if I can talk about it because I wrote about it, the Hilux AT37, which is available from selected Toyota dealers, and you buy the vehicle brand new, the Hilux, and then it's modified, so it's not technically a showroom vehicle in the same way that the the D-Max AT35 is, um, but it still comes with a full warranty, um, and that is incredible. We drove it down to the Alps at speeds of. 
Speeds. Speeds. In perfect comfort, safety, the handling is way better than the standard Hilux even. And this is on 37-inch tyres with a huge, huge lift. Um, and then we drove some extraordinarily challenging off-road terrain as part of a, a French off-road club's weekend competition. And then we drove back at equally high speeds. And I've since driven it elsewhere, and it is phenomenal. Um, again, utterly pointless, way too big for everyday use, um, but it, it's completely glorious. So I'm, I'm, you know, in terms of things, you know, the NSX was amazing in terms of how tactile it was, how faithful the handling was. The NS, the the, um, the Activa Zantia was incredible in terms of sheer grip. Um, the MX5 was was enormous fun. I've incredibly fond memories um, of driving my daughter around in that in the dark with the roof down, snow falling, heater cranked up. You know, brilliant. But the Arctic trucks, yeah, I'm an old school rear wheel drive pickup kind of guy. And what they do is they just take these vehicles and make them more so. And you just revert to being a child. Okay, excellent. What has been your least favourite car to drive and why was that? <laughs> Apart from the Spartan of the Talbot Horizon. Um, well, the Spartan was because of fear of death, possibly. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I don't know. I get disappointed sometimes, and I'm going to dodge the question and not name them. But I get disappointed because a lot of manufacturers do it, and that they they release cars, and you think, you know what? You just this has been reduced to the lowest common denominator. A little bit of thought and care could have have turned this round. Um, as an example of a company that didn't do it, the Seat Ibiza 1.2. I think it's a TSI with the automatic gearbox. You know, not not on paper a fabulous car, but I drove that back from somewhere down south to North Wales at night and had one of the top ten drives of my life in it. Everything about that vehicle was perfectly judged. It was the you know, flawless balance. Nothing, nothing was outstanding. Everything was just in complete harmony, and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. But other people take that kind of same recipe and they just mess around with it and they put unnecessarily low sidewalls on it, for example, or the gearing is 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 is, is towards um, fuel consumption in, in artificial tests rather than real world driving, and the steering is hideously, irrationally weighted, and you just think, why have you done this? I cannot be the first person to drive this who think you've messed this up. But somehow it's gone through a series of, of development challenges and nobody's called them out on it at any stage and gone, that's not good enough. Mm. Okay, good dodging. Um, what um, what car would you like to own next? The, my, I will own a, a Hilux AT37. <laughs> okay. At some point in the middle distance, I will have one, and it will be the most glorious thing, and you'll all be sick of watching it on social media. We will come and we will bow to your greatness at that point. That's what we'll have to do. Uh, what's your favourite road to drive on? Um, I haven't got a favourite road to drive on because often for me it's more about who you've got with you, what you've got playing on the radio, is it night or day, where are you going to, where are you coming from. Um, I mean my favourite road locally is is a road two miles from where we're sitting now called the Panorama which is wonderfully um, photogenic and that was always where I took press cars to to photograph them if I hadn't been anywhere to do it properly so that was my go-to location it's just stunningly stunningly beautiful but I've got the Horseshoe Pass which is 
six, seven miles away, that's a reliably good drive. And there's a sort of triangular route, which is, is quite good fun. But, um, you know, it, for me, it's more about who you're with, where you're going, what you're doing. The story. Rather the vehicle or the road. It's, it's the story. It's, yeah. Okay. Excellent. Uh, what has been the most pointless optional extra you've had the misfortune to use? Well, I mean, there is the game that we motoring journalists play on Audi press launches. Where you get the spec sheet <laughs> and ask the driver how much he thinks, she thinks, you know, the mats are, or the seats. Or, and that's reliably good fun. Because even with years of experience, you still under under guess. Um, but I think generally sat navs. I don't understand how car manufacturers still get sat navs so wrong. You know the the Waze, for example. I you know I think Waze is just genius. It works beautifully. If it diverts me off my route, I've given up questioning it because it's always right. It always gets me there before um, I think I'm going to get there. It never gets gets me lost. Despite the news today, it's never directed me to drive into a lake. It's just brilliant. <laughs> so why manufacturers fit sat-nav in the vehicles, I've no idea. Just put bloody connectivity and put Waze on it and be done with it. Mm. That's it. Or, I know there's a manufacturer that has agreed to put Waze in. Is there? I, I think that was announced at CES, so that's right. starting. I can't remember which one it is, so I don't want to give somebody credit where they're not due. Well, good on them then. But yeah, it does seem sensible. There, there is no point. No, there is no point. No, because we've all got one in our pocket, really. Yeah. So, um, okay then, a penultimate question, uh, and that is, who do you think I should talk to after speaking to you? Yeah, you see, you've got you've got a lot of them. I mean, there's a guy at McLaren. I won't name check him just in case he doesn't want to do it. There's a guy at McLaren. I'll put you in touch with. Okay. But you should probably have a chat with with some of the guys. At um, at Arctic Trucks, I mean Steve Gort maybe, um, you know, and, and talk to them about why they do what they do, um, mm-hmm. because, you know, and you know, I just make it very clear because there, there will be cynics out there. I paid for my Arctic Truck, <laughs> and I have no financial connections with Arctic Truck other than it's such a strong brand. I like working with them because it's good fun and it's easy to sell their stories. Um, but Arctic Trucks are, you know, they're a brilliant company. They're a really strong brand, really talented engineers. Talk, talk to someone there about why they do what they do and how they reconcile these vehicles. Mm. You know, why, you know, the age of sort of small shared ownership hybrids, how, how they're still flourishing. <laughs> okay, I will do. I will do. Um, right, then this is the last question, uh, which is, what's the best way for people to follow what you do or get in touch if they, say, need an interesting story written? Um, well, if you if you Google Carlton Boyce, it's an unusual name. I'm pretty sure you will come up with my phone number. But um, Twitter and Instagram, uh, I'm at Motor and Journal on both of those. Um, follow me there. Contact me through those, and uh, you know I'll get back. You know, not just if you've got commissions. If you just want an atta, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I, social media gets a, a bit of a rough call sometimes for some of the dubious stuff that goes on. Um, but I've found Instagram and and Twitter, just a source of constant joy and interest. I completely agree. This podcast would not exist. Neither of my podcasts would exist if it was not for social media. So, mm. fully agree. And that's where we met. It was, indeed. Yes. Indeed. So, and and in a transport we... calf somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Stalking started. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, allowing me to come to you and uh, natter with you. And thank you so much for sharing your um, fantastic and ridiculous car history and you know how you got to do what you do 
Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's um, It's been a real joy. Thank you. Thanks once again to Carlton for coming on Rearview and chatting with me. I hope you found our conversation as fascinating as I did. And thank you to Mercedes-Benz Vans for making Rearview on Tour happen. To see more about the Vito Tora I used to visit the guests, click the link in the show notes. If you want to suggest someone I should ask to come on this show, please do get in touch. If you use the hashtag ReviewPod, we'll be guaranteed to see it here in Motoring Podcast Towers. To get in touch with me directly, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter. And if you like to keep up to date with motoring news, opinions and car reviews, go try out the sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. Remember, you can support everything we do at the Motoring Podcast in a few ways. Please go to motoringpodcast.com forward slash support to see what they are. I would also really appreciate it if you could tell others about this show. I want as many people as possible to hear the stories of these great guests who come on here. So until next time, that was Carlton Boyce. I've been Andrew Clues, and safe motoring. <laughs>